You are listening to Intersections with Phil Allen Jr., engaging the issues that matter at the intersection of race, culture, and theology. Every week I have the privilege to converse with some brilliant, wise, powerful people from all walks of life. And I say this because they do not have to come on my podcast and open up and share their stories, opinions, and insights. This week is no different. My guest, Sandy Sharp, wears many hats besides mom and wife. She's a spiritual director for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Although you will hear us use the term she mentions in this episode, spiritual companion. She leads a community at Christian Assembly Church in Eagle Rock, California, engaging the issues of racial justice and reconciliation called multi-ethnic learning community. She's also on the leadership team for Racial Justice Coalition of Greater Pasadena. And lastly, she's on the board of the nonprofit I founded called Racial Solidarity Project, or RSP. So listen to her wisdom and insights on, on her role as a spiritual companion, on fostering well-being, especially during this challenging season, and to her story of embracing her Korean identity and mentoring other people of color as they navigate their own faith journey. Sandy, how are you doing? Thank you for joining me here at Intersections with Phil Allen Jr. Um, I'm greatly appreciated, appreciative of you being here, honored to have this conversation with you. Um, in the short time I've known you, in the last year or so, you've always brought so much wisdom to our conversations, our meetings and, and such. So I wanted to share this platform with you and um, so that the, the listeners can hear that wisdom as well. So thank you for joining me. Thank you so much, Phil. It's, it's an honor to be here. And um, this might be my first podcast. I actually had a podcast recorded, but it never got aired. Oh, really? <laughs> so this might be my first. So awesome. I'm honored awesome. to be here with you. That's I'm glad. I'm glad I'm your first then. Um, so let's start with with, why, with you just telling us a little bit about yourself. Um, on my on our website, um, for those of you who I've already shared that Sandy's on um, one of my board members on the Racial, Solid, Racial Solidarity Project, a nonprofit that I, I started uh, about a year ago. And on there, you have your 1.8 generation Korean American. So can you, as you tell us about yourself, can you start with that? I love that. Um, can you share what, what that means and, and, and more, even more about yourself? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just, I kind of made that up. And <laughs> <laughs> um, I just say 1.8 because I have met people that are like 1.5 generation, which means, um, you know, uh, they may have um, been born here, um, born in Korea, um, and raised here, but they came, you know, at a, as a child, as opposed to like an adult. Um, but for me, I actually came just as a four-year-old. So um, I have memories of Korea, but very small snippets. And so when I've been around Koreans, sometimes, especially when I was younger, I felt otherized by Koreans because I uh, came at such a young age and I didn't grow up in the Korean church. And so um, I didn't really have Korean community around. Um, and so I kind of grew up in a more white um, neighborhood. And so my ethnic identity, ethnic identity journey really didn't start till college. And so because of that, um, I just I felt like 
treated more like a second generation, but technically I really did come here, you know, as an immigrant myself. So that's kind of why I do the 1.8 because I feel like I'm close to two, but you know, <laughs> Um, so yeah, so yeah, I, um, so like I said, I grew up in a predominantly white middle-class neighborhood for most of my childhood. Uh, originally when we first came, we lived in what is now Koreatown in, in LA for about, um, maybe about three or four years, um, when I was very young, but most of my childhood, um, and up through high school was, um, in a neighboring town, Glendale. Um, and so I didn't grow up around Korean folks. Um, so I just, I felt like I, I entered into knowledge about myself as a Korean person um, in college. So a lot of my lifetime, I felt like I lived in kind of two different worlds growing up with my Korean family where we spoke Korean, my, my parents that's, I only spoke Korean to them with few like English words thrown in. Um, but then the rest of my world was all in English and it was, you know, just a completely different world that my, I felt like my parents didn't understand that world. And then my friends in this other world didn't understand my family world at all. So I felt very divided growing up. So, so, so how, how did that, and I'm sure you're going to get into this, but how does that form you? How does that, um, being in that liminal space where, like you said, you're literally you're speaking two different languages. You're almost having mm-hmm. to, to compartmentalize your entire life, um, kind mm-hmm. of a double consciousness, um, so yeah. to speak. So how did that form you? Let's say before you started that journey, your ethnic identity journey, were you aware? Were you frustrated? Were, were you just, how would that form you as a teenager? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think I felt, um, I think at times I felt kind of alone in life because I didn't have anyone who experienced that maybe apart from my older brothers, but I, I wasn't, we didn't talk like that, um, amongst ourselves. And so I think I just felt very alone, um, that I would become, you know, good friends with, with friends at school, but, I felt like they didn't, there was a whole side of me they didn't know. Um, and, and I didn't have the words back then to even articulate what my Korean identity meant to me. And to be honest, I think there was a lot of sort of a kind of this ethnic self-hatred going on in the mix of especially high school, because there was nothing around my life that was affirming the Korean side. You know, I had the ex- experience of like being a kid and having like a neighbor kid you know, go into our kitchen, throw open the refrigerator door and see the kimchi jar and be like, oh, gross, what is that? Something dead in there? And, you know, mocking my food or mocking my culture. So kind of learning from that of feeling like I, you know, kind of wanted to distance myself from my Korean identity in the younger years. Um, but then, you know, but then eventually being able to come into college and, and start that journey of really embracing it and, and allowing that Korean side to really flourish and um, be known and, and for me to be become proud of the fact that I'm Korean. Um, but that was a journey for sure. It didn't happen overnight, but um, I felt like I had to discard some of the, you know, just some of the ways that being in a predominantly white culture, you just, you know, as a kid, you just trying to fit in. Mm -hmm. And so I think as a Korean, I was just trying to fit in and by kind of masking that part of myself. And, you know, I did the typical, like, 
I was part of the popular crowd and I was a cheerleader and I was on ASB. I was, you know, good student. So I was really well known, but I wasn't well known for being Korean because I kind of that part got downplayed. Whereas now I like, I kind of lead off with saying I'm a Korean American woman and very proud of it. And I love things about my culture, you know? So, so I, I definitely have changed a lot since my high school days. Now, you know, I, I talk, I wrote about this in my book, Open Wounds, and I, and I talk about this um, often, about the violence of assimilation, mm-hmm. particularly assimilation to whiteness. That when yep. you come here yep. to this country as an immigrant, or if you're um, a, a, a group of, a person of color, um, if you, you almost have to, there's some part of you that must assimilate um, until mm-hmm. you come to this awareness of embracing mm-hmm. your identity and, and, and standing firm on that a lot of times we don't even realize that there's a, there's a type of violence there. There's an mm-hmm. intrusion of an, an erasure that just happens in, and if it's not brought to your attention, you don't even know it's happening. You don't even know that mm-hmm. you're pushing that aside. I mean, you, you, mm-hmm. you know, but you don't realize the implications of that, um, that, that assimilation project and how it works on us. Um, you, you, you've been with InterVarsity for, I think, 27 years. Yeah, now now it's closer to thirty, but yeah, uh huh. This is I think this is my thirtieth year. So you started when you were like twelve at InterVarsity. <laughs> <laughs> so pretty soon out of college, yeah. Okay. So with 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 this ethnic this journey to ethnic identity with for your ethnic identity or with your ethnic identity, um, and InterVarsity, it, I'm assuming there's some overlap there. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely so, was. Mm-hmm. So how did, how did InterVar, what did InterVarsity, how did that play into this, um, this journey for you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd say um, one of the first um, things that was really um, striking to me was my staff worker named Allison, a dear, dear friend of mine, even to this day. And she was the first white person to ever take notice and interest in me as a Korean person. So um, my freshman year, you know, she got together with me, would take me out to lunch and whatnot. And she would ask me like, you know, tell me about uh, your Korean heritage. What is it that you're proud of? What do you like about being Korean? And I was so struck. I had never had anyone ask me that question. Um, first of all, to notice that I'm Korean, you know, because I think a lot of times when an, an Asian person is in the midst of a bunch of white folks, I think we get erased. We're sort of invisible. And, and it's just sort of assumed upon this, like a white, you know, overlay is put, put on us and people mm-hmm. see us as white, you know. And so to be like having someone genuinely take interest in me as a Korean person and and I just was being able to, for the first time, articulate, like, put words to what I love about Korean culture. Like, I think it's really beautiful how Korean culture is very honoring of elders. So, like, we have family gatherings and, you know, my grandparents are there. And the first thing is that, you know, we go to greet my grandparents and honor them because they're the elders. And so just an automatic sense of you always, you know, and then when you get food, you the elders always go first and you serve them first. In fact, you bring them the plate. You don't even make them get in line. You go get a plate and you make it for them and bring it to them. So just this total honoring of elders, which just is so stands out to me. 
um, for instance, and, and just the kind of nonverbal um, looking out for each other, right? Like you're eating dinner and people are just putting food on your plate, you know, it, without even being asked. And some people feel that intrusively, but but it's just such a sense of like, oh, I got you. I got you. You don't even have to say anything. Like I, I'm going to take care of you. And there's such a communal, communal taking care of each other so that that's almost like no one has to ever worry about not having enough food or something, you know? And I think that becomes an analogy for like life. You're really supposed to look out for each other. So, so some of those things, I just got to articulate it. I think the second thing too, is then um, I had a very, uh, very good dear friend named Kevin, an African-American brother. And he was a senior my freshman year. We really started to get to know each other my sophomore year when he was a grad student and he really was the one to sort of help me unpack more about Korean identity and the fact that I'm, you know, in a minority and, and really just start to um, go into bit deeper questions with me. But also he was the first to really expose to, um, like racism, because I think um, it was so more subtle in my life, my experiences that I didn't notice it as much. But then when he would tell me his stories, as a black man in this country, just opened my eyes in a way that changed me forever. Um, just his own experiences with pain and with racism. So I think in that continual dialogue with him and him really mentoring me, just really um, honored the Korean part in me that really honored my voice. It was always asking, "What do you? What do you think, Sandy? I really want to know what you think because I think you bring so much to the table." That's just that kind of. Um, drawing me out. So I think those two people are like huge pivotal people in that process. And then just the community as a whole, um, we just we just really talked about issues of multi-ethnicity, racial reconciliation. Um, Brenda Salter McNeil, um, yeah. you know, is super famous now. Well, she was a chapel intern at my college. And so she had um, discipled Kevin who Kevin mentored me. And so uh, Brenda is like a spiritual grandmother <laughs> to yeah, me. Yeah. And she still to this day is such a champion of Doug and I, when we, you know, do things, she's always championing us. Um, and so I just having those kinds of people in my life at a formative time during college, really, they were huge. They, they were champions of, of bringing that out in me. Um, so, yeah. So I think that's where it started. So that's awesome. Now, just just I should have asked you this earlier, but for those who are listening, in your words, can you tell us what um, what is InterVarsity? What are they about? Where they stand? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. InterVarsity is a collegiate ministry across the country. Um, I don't actually know the technical number of how many campuses we're on, but. Uh, we're probably close to a thousand, if not more. So uh, sorry, University, for not quoting properly. <laughs> um, and I did do that research before I got on this podcast. <laughs> but um, yeah, so we're on. Um, and I think our goal in partnership with other Christians is to um, our goal is to actually be on every campus by 2030. That's one of our hopes is. Uh, but just it's a place where it's an organization where we're trying to um, help create places for students to, to learn to follow Jesus, both for those who have Christian background, as well as those who are totally have no background, um, and trying to create, um, open spaces for people to dialogue, whether it's in more kind of investigative type, um, 
exploratory discussions about Jesus that are kind of more for people who don't know Jesus, as well as for like Bible studies and in-depth discipleship and mentoring and conferences and, you know, all those kinds of things. So, yeah. yeah. InterVarsity, I've I've partnered with with you all um, over the years. Um, Mm -hmm. Eddie Eddie Ekmekji. Yeah, that's uh, right. You just mentioned that to me. And we met years ago. Yeah. We met mm-hmm. years ago when I was a, the, the young adult pastor. And mm-hmm. um, Eddie, just as you described, like we were trying to create this space where not just for university students, but mm-hmm. other Christian groups and those who weren't Christians to come mm-hmm. together, have dialogue, but also for, for Christian groups to pray together. Um, right. Mm-hmm. And I, I would come on a campus and we would, we would, uh, we would pray, we would talk, but, interestingly enough not many people showed up it was me mm-hmm. eddie and it would be a couple other people representing mm-hmm. maybe one or two other groups and that would be mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. but like i said intervarsity has embraced me and welcomed me into their spaces to, to come and share come and speak i still have relationships with people from different who've gone to different colleges i still mm-hmm. keep in touch so InterVarsity definitely is that space. I can see how it's, it's helped formed you and shaped you. Um, mm-hmm. And so you're a spiritual director. Um, yes. Sh- share with us, what is that role? What, is, what does that entail? Um, what is that, what, what do you do? What are your day-to-day, the, the, the trials, the challenges, and the rewards of being a spiritual mm-hmm. director? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so just um, uh, pragmatically speaking, um, for people who aren't familiar with spiritual direction, which a lot of people aren't familiar with it, but um, it's basically as um, I, the the name is so such a misnomer. So I don't really like the term spiritual director because director makes it sound like okay, you must go that way, you know, and it's not that way at all. It's actually really the opposite, and probably the better description is that you're a spiritual companion. Um, and that you, that as a spiritual director, I provide like a safe, confidential space to process about what, um, what is happening in their spiritual life and in their soul and life with God. And of course it, it talks, we're talking about things about their life, but the focus kind of comes back to, and, and, and how is God speaking to you? What is God doing? What is God's invitation to you? Um, it's it's more uh, about that where some people wonder about how is that related to like therapy um, you know so because in therapy you're talking more about relationships and about your you know um, and it's more related to people but um, spiritual direction is, the focus is really about God and our life with God but of course relationships and, and life all shape that so those conversations and in, in, include relationships and talking about relationships um, but a lot of it is just listening and kind of keeping an ear open to the person but a kind of a year open to to god and sort of what is god saying in the midst of this um, and then asking a lot of questions just drawing people out um, maybe noticing things like you know hey you, you were saying something about this and now you're talking about this. Do you think that there's any connection to those things? So it's like um, mirroring back. Um, so, mm-hmm. so those are some of the sort of things that involve spiritual direction. But I think the thing that I most love about it is that it's like I get to just walk alongside people and 
and literally observe how God is moving in their lives. And especially as I walk with people long-term, I can see the larger movements. And it's such a, an honor and privilege to walk with people because it's, it's into some of the most intimate and sacred spaces. So I feel so honored, you know, to be in that with them. And um, a lot of times it's, it's unpacking pain and suffering, um, especially, you know, in the last several years, but in general, it's often the space where people uh, need to go and sometimes are afraid to go to places of pain, but that's often the places where there's a lot of growth, um, but the, people are afraid sometimes to go to those places yeah. of pain and suffering. And so um, sometimes just having a companion to go with them gives them the courage to enter into that. And that's, that's a lot for some reason, that's a lot of the themes that come up in, in my experience with spiritual direction is going into those places of suffering and pain, just because I've had some pretty significant seasons of that. And, and God has used those experiences to um, redeem my experiences and then use them for good as I walk alongside others. So that's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, and I think it's something that we all need, uh, mm -hmm. not just as Christians, but we all need that person that's that's speaking into our lives, that's affirming mm -hmm. us, that um, helps us go to the. I love that helps us go to the places of pain and suffering that we're afraid to go to. Mm. Who mm -hmm. wants to go there alone? Yeah. And are we even are we even meant to go there alone? Mm -hmm. Right. That's right. Yeah. I don't think we are. No. I think we're meant to be in community um, in in these things, and that's why you know, so much of, you know, one of the questions that um, I know that um, we were sort of talking about is about like, particularly in the last couple of years, like what has been some of the things that's been helpful for me, um, honestly, in just even being with others in the journey has been sustaining for me just to know that we're in this together, you know, that we're, even though I'm the one that's kind of more the spiritual director in it, but still just being able to, to, to walk together and know that everyone is suffering and everyone is needing companionship and community. Um, so, exactly. so yeah, it's such an honor and I, I love my job. I sometimes <laughs> feel like oh, I can't believe this is my job because <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I love what I do. Oh, so that's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. You know, you, you talk about, walking with people through pain and suffering. And right now, this series for this podcast, is, we're talking about mental health, we're talking about trauma, we're talking about wellness. Really, the overarching theme is wellness. I want people to have, to walk away from this series, which will last probably a month or two, um, and, and have some tools, um, things that they can pull from, some resources um, to help them sustain themselves during difficult times and to foster wellness to take to, to to be mindful of their well-being, not neglect it and foster that wellness. So, I can only imagine in the last 18 months or so, like everyone else going through this this pandemic, that as a spiritual companion, I want to use that word from from here on out, as a spiritual companion, that that has been challenging. Um, not just because you're going through it, but now we have this extra layer of pandemic and you have the social unrest, the racial injustices that we've seen. Um, you, you mentioned being with others. Are there other, are there anything, any specific practices that you 
and or your family have um, implemented to sustain yourself other than other than what you said about being with others are there anything in, in particular that you've done to um, sustain yourselves during this time mm-hmm. because and uh, let, me, let me add this because like as a mm-hmm. pastor a lot of people assume that I have it all together and I'm good mm-hmm. and so I can only imagine as a spiritual companion that people may think the same thing that you're there for others so you're probably good but mm-hmm. what if what, what if you're not good you're just okay what have you done what do you do mm-hmm. to sustain yourself you or and or mm-hmm. your family mm-hmm. um well one one practice has actually always been a part of my adult life um has been taking sabbaths and that's i would say that's probably the most um foundational piece because I literally um, my husband and I we met through university we were both student leaders together and as students we were taught about Sabbath so as a student as a junior in college I started that practice and have kept it since then um, literally weekly taking a day off um, and it's not just a day off just to veg out and watch tv all day but um, some of what we do is you know, for sure it's a day off of work. So I don't do emails. I don't do meetings. I don't, um, you know, do work related stuff. Um, but we make sure to take time to do things that restore and refresh us. And so we always take some time in nature. So we'll, um, yesterday we, uh, was our Sabbath. So we took a hike, um, together. We, um, so it's nature slash exercise, some way of movement. movement. Um, cause you know, with, um, some of the wellness pieces people talk about is that should include, or it's really helpful to include some sort of movement, connection, music. Um, and what was the other one? Connection movement. Um, it'll come to me in a second. <laughs> But um, so, yeah, having things that those things are mentioned because those are all things that restore our joy. Restoring joy is, um, I think, a a pivotal or crucial experience of of part of Sabbath. And that's partly why being out in nature, exercising, getting those endorphins running, right? Um, We also, we, Doug and I also do a a day breakfast Um, every Sabbath. We start with that for that connection piece and also because you know we're parents we both work all that we um sometimes don't have the time for a more intimate conversation of just like how are you doing and what you know and really talking versus sometimes we're like you know flying past each other through the days like oh how's that going great you know but it's like quick so we definitely have a time where we connect more deeply each week um but then we also have time to reflect and have a little bit more extended time to reflect and pray on our Sabbath, just so that we make sure that, um, you know, sometimes during the week, our prayers might not, we not have quite as much time, but on Sabbath, we just take a little bit more extended time and to reflect and kind of look back on the week. Like what, you know, what are themes of this week? What, what, where was something that a time that something was bothering, but I didn't really have time to kind of investigate that go back to that, you know, and kind of unpack that with Jesus. Um, and then, and then also, um, end the day with dinner with my family, just something that's fun. Um, sometimes we'll play cards, we'll do games, we'll do a movie or something, you know, just something fun. So just kind of basically everything 
that's like restorative practices, you know, all in a day. So, so that's a big one. That's probably the biggest thing, you know, that has sustained me. And I, and I don't think it's a surprise. Um, that's part of what's contributed to both Doug and I are both have been in ministry for 30 years. And I think that's part of it is that that Sabbaths enable us for longevity, you know, because we are sustained over time. Um, the other thing too, is we, I actually uh, practice doing prayer retreats. Like um, I definitely do three times a year and that might sound like a luxury, but it is um, just something that we I make time for. And I usually do it with a couple of really deep, deep, long-term close friends who are also women in ministry. And so we talk both about lives and ministry and, and the toll that it's taking on us, um, talk about things, you know, uh, that pertain to us. But I think having um, long-term friends who've known us really well, and we really speak into each other's lives, both in encouragement, but also speaking truth to each other, where we think something's off and, you know, we're kind of getting there and sort of poke around a little because we have that kind of trust. So, um, so place for that and, and the retreats. Um, and I think honestly, for myself, probably the other major piece that's really helped me to develop a very honest relationship with God, where I feel like I can just tell him how it is and I don't censor myself. Um, and I wouldn't say that that was what I was like saying, even in college, um, because I think that I was so wrapped up in and doing things right that I, I felt like I kind of still had to like get myself together to some degree um, as I come to God, you know, versus I think as I gotten older, I've become more and more able to just come as I am, yeah. you know, and to be fully honest um, with my fears, concerns, gripes, sometimes, you know, and especially in the last couple of years, a lot of anger too, right. With of all that's been going on um, and being able to feel very free to be honest with God and to allow that to just be kind of dumped. Right. Sometimes I call that like emotional vomiting <laughs> where I feel like God can handle that. Um, maybe even in a way that other human beings, it's harder to do that with. Um, but anyway, so I think that's been a major um, absolutely needful thing for me. Um, and then I think also just doing that throughout the day, not like prayer time is this one hour a day where I talk to God and then I kind of go on with my day. But I'm, I think ever since I've had kids when they were really young and I absolutely couldn't do that, I developed kind of just a regular dialogue with God throughout the day. Like literally I'm in the car and I'm like talking out loud to God and I'm sure people are like, Oh, she talking to you, but everyone has earbuds these days. So I guess everyone does that too. Uh -huh. But yeah, just freely just talking out loud to God and sometimes in my mind if I'm with other people, but, but just, yeah, just throughout the day, I'll just say like, Oh, wow, God, that's such a pretty flower there. Thank you for that. Or, you know, whether it's thankfulness, whether it's just like, Oh God, that was such a hard conversation. I'm, I'm really frustrated God. And I just, I just need to do give me a moment and help me to like unwind and give that to you. And, you know, just whatever, but I'm just talking to God all day long. I, yeah, I don't, I don't confine my prayer time to be just, you know, that one yeah. time, but 
so that's been I've been talking to God a lot, especially um, part of it is because even before the whole COVID and racial unrest, I I just had like seven years of pretty health, pretty much a huge major health crisis, and I had I don't even know if I told you this before, Phil, but I had six surgeries in seven years, mm-hmm. um, and so so I sort of felt like I kind of went through my own personal like pandemic um, of being isolated, um, dealing with a lot of suffering, a lot of pain, a lot of fears, depression, a lot of stuff in those years. So I sort of feel like coming out of that and myself health-wise being more stable, I actually feel kind of like the pandemic actually hasn't been as hard because I already kind of felt like I went through sort of a hellish season. So, so to be honest, yeah, I just, I feel like I, I'm kind of coming out of something already. um, Yeah. In my own personal life. You said so much. I want to respond to a few things. Oh, sorry. Uh, No, 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 it was good. I, I, it was really good. But what you just shared about, you know, six surgeries in seven years, I read something on social media yesterday about um, you've what you're going through now is your preseason to prepare you for the season. Mm -hmm. And I tell people the same similar, something similar. The previous five or six years have been that preseason, that training Mm -hmm. camp, that hellish experience that I felt like prepared me to be available during the pandemic mm. for others. Cause I'd gone mm. through so much in, 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 the, in probably the same period that you had. Mm, it's interesting from divorce, church hurt, um, death in the family, multiple matter of fact, years ago, we're talking 14 to 17, eight deaths of people close to me, all my grandparents, so, and I didn't really have a chance mm. to grieve. So I oh, think that goodness. pandemic yeah. actually gave me space to grieve. Huh. Yeah. And I started grad school. I planted my ministry on your faith, all mm. of that in the same month, mm. divorce, planting a ministry and grad school in the same month in 2015. Oh, wow. It wasn't the plan. Mm-hmm. And it took its toll. But I want to go back to what you said about Sabbath. Cause that I, I want I want people who are listening to really wrap their minds around the importance of Sabbath. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't get it. They they take it for granted. They think it's just like a day off. And it's not yeah. just a day off. It is a time mm-hmm. to be restored. Mm-hmm. And for for the first seven or eight years of ministry, I didn't take that seriously. Mm-hmm. And I experienced burnout. When when you're on the phone trying to counsel someone and you start to be in tears, Mm -hmm. not because of what they're sharing. You -hmm. don't even know why you're crying. You just know Mm -hmm. you don't want to be there listening to what they have to say Mm -hmm. because you don't have anything to give them. Yeah. You're like on fumes there. (laughs) And so experience like that, Mm -hmm. or when you get away and you sleep for two or three days straight and you didn't even Mm -hmm. know you were that tired because you were just on autopilot going, 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 because you thought that's what ministry was just Mm -hmm. serving the Lord. And then you take that day off and you get back and you do it again. And so for all that time, I wasn't taking, I took my day off, but I didn't take Sabbath seriously Mm -hmm. until I started going through the fire and Mm -hmm. and the Lord slowed me down and Sabbath became primary practice in my life. Mm 
So I hope people understand what you're saying about whether it's nature. I love the part about nature plus movement. Mm-hmm. Right. It, it, that that yeah. movement part that I go running on, on, on my Sabbath. I run. Uh, and there, there are times when I do rest, but I'm usually running um, mm-hmm. and there is music and I'm at I'm at the Rose Bowl and there are people who are usually there running daily. So I know the we know the faces. So we, we wave right. and we speak, you know, so that connection is there as well. Um, and then you mentioned play. Mm-hmm. Right. And I want that's part of my research for my dissertation um, is this this theology of play, theology and ethic of mm-hmm. play, practice of play. Mm-hmm. We've, we, we lose that as we get older. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm envious of children now because mm-hmm. they can play and just enjoy. And I think that's what God wants from us. That's what the Sabbath, mm-hmm. I, I preached a message years ago where the Sabbath really is this time set aside where God wants us to play with God. Mm-hmm. Let's play. Let's, yeah. let's enjoy one another. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I started to really take seriously my Sabbath and I implement Sabbath principle on a daily basis. So I, mm-hmm. I, I take time out each day mm-hmm. to rest, even if it's 30 minutes, an hour, 15 mm-hmm. minutes to just yeah. stop what I'm doing, reflect, mm-hmm. breathe, take a yeah. walk. That is mm-hmm. a type of Sabbath yeah. during the day for me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and there's so much absolutely. you said, so much you said that was so rich in there. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I hope people go back and listen to this again because that's very important um, in terms of mm-hmm. sustaining ourselves. And I imagine that for you as a spiritual companion, spiritual director, um, some, but someone who is on the front lines of racial justice and, and reconciliation, I use solidarity, but someone that's on the front line, I would imagine that has come, that has been, been vital for you to, to endure the stuff that you have to, the conversations you have to have, the resistance mm-hmm. that you might face for people who don't see it or get it or hear you um, when organizations and institutions are moving pretty slowly and you're like, we should be here. Right. So yes. I imagine this, this is, 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 is foundational for you, but I want to, I want to, I want to also get your, 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 you to respond to during this pandemic, um, just just share whatever insight you you, you have on the, the racial unrest, how it have impacted you, but particularly anti-Asian violence, the up the rise in anti-Asian violence, mm-hmm. even as an African-American, um, I could feel that in my body because mm-hmm. of our experience. So it's not foreign to me. So when I see, mm-hmm. and I, I would see these videos of the elder, older Asian yes, people who yes. were attacked. You know, I see my grandmother. Yes, I see. I don't what, see oh. an Asian woman. I see that's my grandmother. Elderly, and, I, and I'm yes. and I'm angry, right? Mm-hmm. But but I want to hear. Tell us about. Give us insight on how 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 you experienced that um, mm-hmm. during this this last eighteen months. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I'm glad you brought that up because, like, just what I said earlier, right? It's like one of um, for so many Asian cultures, the the upholding and honoring of elders, right? That's so part of our culture. So to see the people that we most honor to be the, the focus of some of these attacks was just, it's like triply devastating, mm-hmm. right? Because it's almost like 
I often felt like I wish I was the one there and they would attack me and not this like Haraboji harmony that's Korean and uh, for grandfather and grandmother. And, and it's so familial that even if it's not someone you're related to, you still call them grandmother, grandfather. Yeah. So you still use the term Haraboji harmony to a stranger who's elderly because that's how we revere them. And so, Oh, so yeah. Oh, that was so heartbreaking. That was, I would say that was probably the hardest is watching elderly people attacked. You know, they were just walking, totally minding their business. I'm sure not causing any, because that's not what elderly Asian people do. They're not <laughs> going out there to like start a fight or something like that. They're yeah. just minding their own business. So that was so heartbreaking. Um and yeah, that back to the thing about having an honest relationship with God, I, I was, I was just furious at times where I had to just go to God and just vent my anger at seeing some of these images and some of what happened. Um, but I think also, um, we, um, we've had intentionally created some spaces for people to process it together with other Asian Americans. So as a part of InterVarsity, we had um, these groups where we can process together. Um, some some of the, the Asian American director for InterVarsity kind of helped to coordinate some of that and asked um, some of us, you know, that are more spiritual formation type staff to host them. But also within um, my church, we have a group called the Multi-Ethnic Learning Community that we meet once a month. Um, but during that season, you know, we would just intentionally create spaces for lament. Um, and we had done that like the week after George Floyd had been killed. We, um, you know, sort of had an impromptu lament service online. And we had people from our group, but plus more, I think we had like almost 100 people on this call, which told me that their people were just yearning for space to process and to lament together. Um, and a number of people, you know, we did sort of on that one, we focused on um, our African-American brothers and sisters to just share and for us to come around them and pray for them and kind of grieve with them. And so then, you know, we did the same for Asian-Americans during that season. Um, also, Center for um, Racial Reconciliation that John Williams led um, from the beginning of some of the anti Asian American hate, they hosted like a webinar thing and brought in different ones of us to kind of share and um, teach them about the history. Because I think there's a lot of people out there that didn't even know that racism towards Asian Americans is not a new thing. It's historical, you yeah, know? Yeah. And so for us to kind of educate people about it, but um, I think it was also just using my voice and talking about it and, you know, engaging people in conversations about it, you know? posting about it and having people learn. And there are a lot of people that just didn't know much about what was happening and just using my voice um, to inform people who might not otherwise know. Um, healing to have people reach out to me. So interestingly enough, some of the pe first people to reach out to me were, uh, were my brothers and sisters from the black community where because there's that, you know, sensitivity to this kind of thing, because it's like, uh, yeah, been there, done that, you know, experienced this all my life. And so to have some of them be the first to like reach out, call me, text me, how are you doing? Um, was just so touching. Um, 
I think that is one of the things that was also redemptive in this season is I do feel like amongst um, other groups, I just felt like there was an increase of supporting one another. So like, you know, when um, things were happening with George Floyd and um, Ahmaud Aubrey, all that, we, there was a group of Asian American activists that put on like an Asian American um, for Black Lives, you know, event. Um, and so we went to that. So I felt like, you know, that, and then I think having the Black community support us, it just felt like there was a something redemptive. And I think to be able to see some of that was also positive in the midst of such hatred to see, uh, see the allyship, the support, the solidarity um, was really sustaining to, um, you know, to see like, despite despite the evil that's happening, like love is rising up. Love, love is, is um, giving us the courage to keep going. Yeah. So, yeah. What, what would you say to the person who may not have the community or the resources that you or I have that they can't see what's redemptive? Mm. they can't see it yeah maybe they're spending they spend much of their time on social media and they see so much vitriol yeah um maybe they don't have the resources to um for community um information but they just don't they don't see the re what's redemptive because it's it's just one after the other yeah. And maybe they don't really know the Lord. What would you say to that person? How would you um, counsel them if they threw that question? If, if, if we were live and someone mm -hmm. was in the audience and they said, well, I don't, how do I, how can I, I don't see it. Mm -hmm. Not as easily as you do, as you mm -hmm. all do. Yeah. That's a good question. Um, I think, you know, I think there are these, different kinds of like mental health tools um like uh, breathing exercises right um just uh, you know there's all kinds of apps for that these days um mm -hmm. but just literally you know it's just learning to slow down our breathing to to breathe deeply and to um as we exhale to try to release whatever it is that we're carrying the stress or the anger or what whatnot um I think no matter who you are, even if they don't know God, I think um, to make a decision to not only dwell in those, um, you know, all the hate and the vitriol, like you ex uh, talked about, um, and and releasing that. Um, there's a, an exercise that I I will use for for folks, and and it can be for people of faith or not but just like, it's kind of like a centering prayer kind of a thing where I was just talking about this earlier with a directee. Um, it was just like picturing yourself, um, like standing by a stream and, you know, as, as thoughts go come by that are either dark or heavy, you know, just kind of laying it down into the stream and like literally picturing it, laying it down into the stream and letting it pass. Um, just at least just like some kind of exercises where you're releasing some of it so that it's not at least stuck inside. Um, and and there, um, 
I think uh, I think if if there's any thing that they can hold on to that is something that they could be grateful for to intentionally um, go to those places of like, you know, maybe it's a good, they have a dog or they have a neighbor who's been kind, you know, even if they don't have deep community, like, or the, the checker who treated them with dignity, you know, just like small things. But I think intentionally turning our focus on things that are, are positive and life-giving or something we could be grateful for, even if it's small. Yeah. I think intentionally not just staying in, in all the, the bad and the yuck and the evil. Um, I think for anyone, you know, that's, that's draining because as, as human beings, we weren't created to, to dwell in that. And honestly, I, I think people need to limit social media. I mean, I just, I regularly take breaks. Like I'm on a season where I'm just, taking a break from it. And the only time I'm posting is just posting things I'm grateful for, because I just feel like that's all I can do. And, and that's good for me to kind of express gratefulness, but also hopefully it, you know, makes someone smile, you know, but I just need to take a break. So I, I think, I don't know, I sort of have mostly a love, hate, hate relationship with social media. Like I mo- I mostly feel negative about it, right? Um, I was just listening to this whole thing about Facebook and yeah. all of what they know, you know, yeah. I don't yeah. know if you're about that. That just made me mad. Yeah. I had to take that to Jesus. Like, oh my gosh, the yeah. evils of the corporation sometimes, you know, Absolutely. Just, Absolutely. and that they, they, it's always about money, you know, it's just like, okay, so that's, that's where I'm, I can go off on that for a while, but, um, but yeah, so I think just being able to even just do some simple exercises. And if it is things like making sure they're eating, making sure they're drinking water, Mm. making sure that they're sleeping at least, you know, a good seven, eight hours a night, if they can, um, making sure they're moving, you know, like we talked about movement, either if it's just walking, um, For me, it's dancing. I love to dance. And I, I used to take a dance class, but I, um, because of COVID, that dance class no longer is. So um, just dancing around in my room by myself, or, yeah. you know, but just, yeah. So, so I think those are still things that can do. Yeah, then no, that's good. So what I'm, what I'm hearing you say is, one, examine the resources. You, we all have resources. Um, mm. Yeah. The more I, the more I listen and learn, um, especially when it comes to trauma, we all have resources. Mm-hmm. Um, there are very few people. It's rare to not have any resources that are life giving. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And so, you know, I, I think about you, you said, you know, take a walk. And so then my, my first thought is, what about the person who's in a wheelchair? But, mm. you know, when I go to the Rose That's Bowl. That's a good point. Yeah. But mm-hmm. the first but I go to the Rose Bowl. Do you know that there are people out there? in wheelchairs and I, mm-hmm. I'm running and I just start smiling. I want to take a picture mm-hmm. of them and I, and, and whatever mm-hmm. fatigue I feel, I'm like, this person is pushing themselves 3.1 miles in this wheelchair mm-hmm. and they got to go mm-hmm. up that hill on the other side. Mm-hmm. And they don't, mm-hmm. there's no one pushing them. There's a lady, mm-hmm. she's, she's pushing herself. Wow. This is her workout. So wow. what it made me think about is one, we all have the resource. So examine your resources when you mm, feel overwhelmed and you don't have, as I'm listening to you, but also tap into those resources, whether it's mm-hmm. music, take that walk, the exercises, 
exercises, mm -hmm. your dog, um, a person. You're, you're talking about resources that are life-giving. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that I don't know if we do that enough, if we appreciate that enough, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. shifting our minds. We don't lose our free will when we're even when we're overwhelmed, but shifting our minds to the person, the thing, mm -hmm. the place, um, mm -hmm. the activity, the movement, the music that's life giving. That's right. Mm -hmm. You know, I hated running. Yeah. I hated, listen, listen to what I'm saying. Look at, look at my face. I hated running two years ago. It is one of the most. I feel that I still don't really like running, <laughs> so I can hear you. <laughs> but it is one of the most life giving. It is the most life giving besides my prayer life, the most life giving mm. um, activity that I have. And mm -hmm. I have certain music doesn't have to be worship music. It's old school R and B or hip hop. I have certain mm. music that I listen to. That fires you up. Yeah. That's right. It's life-giving. So yep. I want yep, to give yep. you any final words you want to share to the believer or the non-believer uh, moving mm -hmm. forward um, as mm -hmm. a spiritual companion. What would your last words be in mm -hmm. the, for this episode that you would mm -hmm. want to share if you have any last words for anyone? You know, one, one other thing I might say, even again, Dressing someone who might not already know God is um, maybe to to consider just being open to the possibility that there is a God out there that that might have a way that they can a God that could influence them in mm -hmm. a positive way, and so like one of the things I will say or do with someone who doesn't know God, it's like, you know, um, that's totally fine. You know, you don't maybe even believe in God or um, have any faith background, but can I just pray for you? Because I believe there's a God that loves you. And I figured we all could use love, right? We could all use a little bit of love, whether you even believe God is there out there or not, but by the mere chance that God might be there, What's there to lose, right? Exactly. Because if God might, you know, if you just are open, you know, and and ask or just have an open heart while I ask for you and just say, hey, God, would you just somehow show up in some kind of mysterious way that would translate and make sense to this person that I mm. love? Would you do that and see what happens? Yeah. And so I figured, you know, if, you're someone out there listening to this and you've never felt the touch from God before. I figured what's the harm in it, right? Maybe, you know, in this season where there's a lot of need just to open up and just say, Hey, God, if you are out there, I don't even know if you are. I probably don't even believe you right now, but if you are, I'd be open to letting you show me some of your love mm. or touch me in some way that mm. would make sense to me. Yeah, yeah. That's what I'd say. And I think people who are Christians could still reuse that too, right? Exactly, so, uh, exactly. That's yeah. good. That's good. I, I had a um a buddy in the gym the other day this week. He was talking about the coincidences, these crazy mm. coincidences that had intersect with my life and his friends, mm. a friend of his life, someone who just went to my home state. And there were two or three things that happened. And he said, man, it's amazing how the universe works. 
Mm. And, and I almost let it go. I almost went, went on to work out. And I said, you know what? What you call the universe, I call God. Mm-hmm. And he, like, he, what if that's actually a actual yeah. <laughs> God orchestrating he, this? And we we both kind of laughed. He kind of laughed. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. Mm-hmm. But I wanted him to know mm-hmm. that there is a God, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. During this pandemic, there is still a God. Mm-hmm. After George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Arbery, um, the 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 rise in anti Asian violence and immigration, uh, inhumanity towards immigrants and what's happening in Afghanistan. And we can go, the list can go on and on. Colin, Colin Powell, rest in, rest in peace, sir, yeah. um, passing away because of COVID complications and his underlying yeah. health concern, health issues. There's still a God. Mm-hmm. That's what I've had and to come God. back to. Yeah, and a God that deeply, deeply loves us. Yeah, yeah, and it's not just this trite thing, but that yes, that he and a God that wants to be in the suffering with us. I think that's been my. It's the thing that's kept me in so many different situations. My dad died in my arms when I had seven years of surgery. There's yeah, all these really difficult and dark places it's the fact that Jesus is there with me, suffering with me. That's what sustained me time and time and time again. It didn't mean that the circumstances changed because they didn't. Um, And like, yeah, I kept having surgeries after surgeries that kept failing and failing. So it wasn't that, that miraculously, like everything turned around circumstantially, but, but God sustained me and he was with me in the suffering that enabled me to keep going day after day. Absolutely. And so, so I think for people to know that there's a God that wants to, to be in the trenches with us, um, isn't far and distant, um, but is wants to be right there close up with us. Absolutely. That's, that's what keeps me going. We can't go, we can't continue to do this work, the work that we do without that reality. Absolutely. That there is a God. I would be long dead. <laughs> long dead. here yeah. in it with us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I sense God's presence. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, that's what sustained me as well. Mm-hmm. That's what sustained yeah. me. Sandy, thank you so much for absolutely sharing your story your wisdom your insights um spiritual companion Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's what that's the term i'm going to use for you from here on Mm -hmm. out um thank you so much and i appreciate your presence and you being here with us at the intersections Mm -hmm. thank you thank you so much for the honor to be here with you phil you're welcome you're welcome i hope you were inspired by this conversation I hope you learned something new in this conversation. And as always, thank you for listening and parking with me at the intersections.